Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. Today, Travis Miller joins me. Travis has a blog, The Grumpy Wizard, where he waxes eloquently about a number of subjects. Today, we talk about writing, and we ramble ourselves onto a long and winding road. I also have a Patreon for less than the cost of one can of pop, soda, or soda pop, whatever you call it, you can support me each month with a donation of $1, or more if you so choose. It is getting late here in the palatial studio. Sisters and brothers, it is time to get rambling. Hello, Travis. Hi, Jeff. So, recently, uh, I was on Facebook, and I saw you were on, uh, you attended some various workshops, uh, writing workshops, and um, it seemed like some of the, the stuff that you, 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 um, you the, the workshops you went to, uh, you found very insightful for a number of reasons, um, as far as, I guess, especially, you know, looking at as far as business, and uh, and also um i think one of the aspects too you're talking about like like um, um about how nimble the industry is and how kind of the desktop industry that the, we're probably a little bit more nimble than they are and i think you also talked about another woman who who uh, worked away into making a living so i think uh you had a couple of days to kind of <clears throat> cogitate on that and it's kind of kind of wanting to know what your thoughts were cuz the little bit i i i read it maybe want to know more yeah, so the the event I went to was uh, called Incubator. It's a, a writing conference, a free writing conference in Cleveland. It's put on by uh, an or, a nonprofit organization here called Literary uh, Literary Cleveland, and it basically what it sounds like it provides. Uh, it's sort of a uh collaborative organization for writers uh booksellers anybody involved with pretty much print pr- kind of products uh print stories and uh so they've been t- this is the eighth one that they've done and they have it at the main library in downtown cleveland so that uh it's a it was a two-day event in person in a and then they had two evenings where they did uh, online seminars as well. Oh, really? So that really yeah. could have been anybody could have attended those. Yes. Yep. So are those, I'm assuming those are still available online. Do you know or I don't know? I have I'd have to look on their website and see if they they put up the videos. I know I got a couple emails with links to recordings of the two sessions that they did online. So those were on there. Um, and there's all there's actually people who teach storytelling and writing uh, that are authors or former screenwriters or that uh, do as a side gig teaching um, writing the various sorts. So if you poke around a little bit, you can you can find some of those resources and and what they'll do is they'll have a they'll have like a, a a class or a workshop or something like that that they charge money for but as a teaser they'll give you uh they'll do like an hour long zoom call and there'll be 100 people on it and they'll talk about something for an hour 
And then at the end of the call, they're like, but if, you know, I talked about all this, but if you really want to level up yeah. your writing, then you, you got to do the four month, you know, intensive program for $2,000 and I'll teach you everything you need to know about writing screenplays or fiction or whatever. Um, but this was all free, which is really cool. And it was all pretty much with a few exceptions, uh, local published authors, most of them having, uh, it was a mix of people who had trade deals who had traditional, um, Right. Contracts with, you know, uh, Penguin or whoever. And then there was a few people that were uh, independent uh, where they'd self-pubbed. And there were some that had um, deals with small independent publishers like but, Microcosm. But for you, I mean, it sounds like at least the little I know as far as reading um, things that you've written and, and things you said, it's like you're kind of approaching writing in many different aspects you're not saying writing as publishing a book but you're kind of it, it seems to me that between your essays i'm assuming are you also looking at maybe uh screenplays and things like that as well or well a thing i recognized a few years ago is that my favorite sort of storytellers i like to call them think of them nowadays were are and were people who didn't just write novels or just write screenplays or just, I'm sorry, not or just novels or short stories. There were people who did lots of different forms of storytelling. So if you look at somebody like Harlan Ellison, he wrote short yeah. stories, he wrote novels, he wrote screenplays, he wrote television shows. Star he Trek. Wrote, yeah, he did Outer Limits. Yeah. He was on Babylon 5. I think he wrote some of the episodes for Babylon 5. He wrote Twilight Zone episodes. Um, he, you know, he just did a bunch of different stuff. Uh, an, another guy that's not well known these days is named Alfred Bester. He wrote some uh, really good science fiction books that won big awards. He also wrote television and film. Uh, you look at you know somebody who's kind of in the zeitgeist right now is Neil Gaiman. He's written. He started off as a journalist. His first paying gigs were as a, was as a journalist. He uh, was a comic book writer. He's written television. He's written films. He's running a show. Um, what else is you know obviously short stories, obviously essays. You know he's basically written in every form in the English language that somebody's getting published and paid for, he's doing it. So I've a few years ago, I sort of realized that, Oh, wait a minute. You don't have to just be a novelist. You don't right. have to just be. And, and we saw that in, in, in gaming too, where you think about some of the game designers that worked for TSR where they would do their game design gig during the daytime. And then, they would do uh, write novels as freelancers for TSR in the evenings. Um, you know, obviously there's Tracy Heckman who started off at TSR writing game modules like Ravenloft and um, what was the other one? Phoenix? No, uh, not Phoenix Pharaoh. He wrote, oh, okay. Two, yeah, yeah. He wrote two or three modules when he came 
to uh, TSR and then ended up writing novels and switching over to writing novels. Uh, Matt Forbeck is another guy who did games and, oh, yeah. video, uh, and you know, so there's, this is a thing. Uh, so I realized that, okay, well, that seems like something you could do. And then the other thing I put together with that was you have all these industries that are now being upended by digital distribution. So there are comic book writers making independent comic books, either having printed through Kickstarters or um, web comics. You have novelists, self-publishing novels. You have all kinds of storytelling being done by independent people. So my basic thought is to be sort of like a one man publishing and writing or public one man publishing company who only publishes one guy's work in different formats, because one, it's just fun to do different formats because every format has its different things that you can do with it. You can do things in the novel that you wouldn't necessarily want that you can't really do in a short story. Um, You could do certain things in comics that you can't, necessarily do the way you tell the story uh impacts the kinds of stories that you tell and and the what and the and the sort of narrative technique that you use right like the people complain about the movie not being like the book well you can't make a movie directly cannot. out of the book it just will not work no no there are two different storytelling mediums you can you can honor the character of the you could honor the spirit and the themes of the story right uh probably one of the best ones i can think of was the Hogfather, which was a terry pratchett novel um they did a two-part miniseries on sky or something i think or in the uk for it and it was fantastic it wasn't exactly the book but it was really close and it nailed the themes it nailed the motifs that pratchett was trying to get across in that book um so it could be done it's but then you have to have um the people on board doing that work has have to want to respect what the right original creator's work was and that's why you're seeing uh novelists becoming showrunners like uh, if, I don't know if you followed The Expanse, which was a TV oh, show. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was a ten-part series of novels um, before it was a TV show, and the guys who wrote the novel ran the TV show because they're like, yeah, I don't want Hollywood screwing up my stuff. So I'm yeah, I think it. my point a lot of times is there's a lot of <clears throat> there's a lot of like exposition you can do in books, but yep. exposition will kill your show or your movie. Yeah, and even really in novels, you don't want to do it any more than you absolutely have right. to. Uh, you want to—it's a thing you want to avoid. But the thing—the big thing that you can do in a novel that you cannot do in a film, or at least it's very, very difficult to do in a film—is uh, capturing the inner thoughts of a character, right? Um, and and pacing the transformational arc of that character uh in a in a slower way i mean you have to get from in a two-hour film you have to get from 
the the protagonist believes and acts one way to the protagonist has to change and believe and act in a different way in order to overcome the obstacle that they're facing at the beginning of the film at the instigating incident at the beginning of the film so you've got 100 pages of screenplay to do that where you've got 300 pages of novel to do that and so the pacing difference is is much different and it's just how do you cap i mean like uh, do the first dune film that they did where you're hearing like the voiceover of paul right. yeah doing the do talking to himself kind of stuff or uh fight club actually did it really well where they had these sort of b-roll montages with the character doing the voiceover and then breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience. Yeah, there's Chuck Norris in the octagon. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's just hard to do. So I know. It's impossible it, they, to didn't, do they didn't do it well there either. I, yeah. I, I mean, was so, I'll still ape that occasionally. <laughs> brother, my brother, my brother. He's out there. He's out there. He's out there. <laughs> my wife just shakes her head and just keeps walking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you look at it's just hard to show those are visual mediums. Yeah. And you know, the benefit that the novel writer has is they have the, the audience helping them. Oh yeah. You know, cause when you read the book, no matter what the, the writer puts on the page, the audience is still going to think something a little bit different than what the writer was thinking when they were sitting at the desk writing. So, um, yeah, they. Uh, I didn't really get to your <laughs> question. Uh, so yeah. The, yeah, there was a bunch of. Uh, so every there were, I think, four sessions per day on Friday and Saturday, and um, they were kind of varied depending on on what you were interested in. Um, they usually in each session they would have something like, they would have a nonfiction session, a fiction session. They would have like five different things, breakouts going on at each five or six different breakouts in each uh, time slot. Yeah. Kind of like any, like kind of, kind of like a game convention where you got 10 different things going on. You can pick one of them. Um, and so just depending on what was interesting, I did uh, several of them that were, uh, I did like three that were just about writing craft stuff. Uh, one was strictly about dialogue. Uh, there's a, woman who is the resident writer in residence for the Cleveland uh, libraries this year, they have a writing center and you can just go there. They have free writing courses and you can just show up to their writing classes and, or you can take her a couple pages of your book and she'll read them and go, no, that's crap. This is good. Keep this, get rid of that, rewrite this. Um, and so she did a, 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 an out 90 minutes on just dialogue, which was excellent. She writes, uh, cozy mysteries um she was she's really good and she was also interesting in that she the first 25 books she published were self-published books and then on the strength of those books and the sales of those books uh penguin random house came to her and an agent came to her and said hey we want to sell your books we want to we want to 
we want to sign you for a contract. We'll give you a big advance and do all the and do all the marketing and all that crap that you've had to do for yourself for the last five years or whatever it was. Because she writes fast. She's writing mi- murder mysteries, and murder mysteries have a formula, right? Person, the 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 detective shows up. Somebody gets killed. They look at the scene. The killer tries to cover something up or prevent the the guy. You know, there's a there's a there's like there's beats that you have to hit, and once she kind of knows what those beats are, you just sort of fill in the the middle, and they're sixty thousand word novels, maybe. And if you can write two thousand to three thousand, you can write two to five thousand words a day. You can write one of those in a month, like easy. Yeah, it kind of goes back to remember. There's a big kerfuffle uh, in our in well, our industry in our hobby about I think the idea of uh, the the word rate that people are getting paid. Yeah, and some people get all bent out of shape. I know one gal. She's a she writes professionally. She's like, you know, like mind your own business. I can I can put out a lot of words. I make a good living. You people don't know what you're talking about. Like, you know, oh, we got to have X number. She's like, well, I think, but I think that's what it comes down to yep. is, you know, it's kind of like anything else, anything you make, you know, if it takes you a year to write a novel, you know, yeah. it's, it's, you're not going to make a living off of it, but you can crank one of them out a month, you know, that starts adding up. Yeah. She can do like three or four a year. And, uh, you know, it's well, and if you look at the word, the, the amount of, words that pulp writers were producing in the 30s on a typewriter (laughs) through the mail you know where us now we can i can crank something out on my computer email it have a have a response that afternoon as to whether they're going to accept it or not you know that's a pretty big difference between just in terms of time and how much. Yeah, and also you know, and those guys were those guys were generating an absurd amount, like you know, 20, 20, 30 short stories a year. Yeah, but I think that's the other thing is the. I mean, the paperback. What was generally like one hundred and fifty pages, give or take yeah. twenty or thirty pages. Well, I'm talking but, even before that with the with the with the with the with the. With the pulp zine yeah, the pulp short stories yeah, i think what's guys. happened is with the harry potter syndrome now everybody's wanting 600 800 page books which just is absurd mm-hmm. and i think that's a that's probably another thing that's probably i could see where people are more restrictive is like yep it takes a lot more effort to put something out than it is to put out a bunch of smaller novels so the sifwa the, they just changed what their acronym means. The Society Science Fiction Writers Association. It used to be Science Fiction or Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association. It used to be called the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America. It's changed now. Um, they're they've had to, the new system has caused them some hard headaches because it used to be. And I think maybe like in order to join, you had to have a certain word count at eight cents a word was what you had to get paid. And it could be, and it had to fall into certain categories of stuff. And it were very, 
precise about how they counted it. Because if you once you hit that mark, then you could join CIFWA, and there's benefits to doing that. Um, now it's a dollar amount that you make from selling your books, and right, that's because, like, right because if you're selling, that's like I've got a crate yeah. of them in my trunk, and I sold them at a science fiction con, and it's by and they do it by the honor system too, because they're like, how do we? <laughs> Right, it's a different I mean, economy where people are selling on Amazon. Right, right. So the the I guess at least for that particular so that for that one um, session that I went to, the, the big takeaway from it was there is now almost a lot of the writers who were had tr traditional publication uh, deals that I interacted with also said they had they were hybrid where they would do they were publishing some of their own stuff they were publishing stuff with small tiny imprints you know basically the equivalent of something like uh, lamentations of the flame princess or yeah. you know, one, or a, or one of these other small companies like we have around here these days where it's like yeah they're publishing a little bit of everybody's stuff um or and they might have a two book deal with a big one of the big five well it seems to me that that's also pretty um uh, applicable to if people are wanting to break into uh writing for rpgs like i think that is because you can start publishing your own stuff uh and then you can show it to people the people may like it and then they may say hey i'll give you a little bit of work here and then, you know, it, it, it does add up because there's a number of people I've kind of I've noticed over. Well, even people who do, who do podcasting have um, like James Intercasso in the D&D &D world and James Holloway is another one where uh, they've had podcasting and they start doing a little bit of writing and they do a little bit more writing. And then they actually start becoming, um, you know, start gaining popularity. It may not be huge but i mean there is i think that's the thing is where people may get frustrated not knowing but um i think being able to see that there is a path but the problem is you got to be consistent yes you can't just say okay i wrote my book now where's everybody where are all my the legions coming to to, to buy my book and people wanting to sign me up right and there's well and you know uh there's it's not just consistent but it's also over you have to build a body of work over time yeah that's what i mean it's like you, you have to you can't just do a little bit you have to produce dependably i think because if you're just doing it once so often if, it, if it's too long before publications people are going to forget about you but if you i think you start you're able to produce something and being in front of people consistently i think that helps generate a little bit of momentum it, it absolutely does and and in the and in the fiction world it has become a situation where, and this is a reason why I decided I would probably never try to seek out a trade, a traditional pub uh, contract. Cause nowadays the, basically the publishing houses don't do a whole lot of marketing for you. They don't do a lot of PR work for you. They don't send, they don't push um events for you 
you have to pay an agent or a manager to do that stuff, or you have to do it yourself. Uh, and it's hard to get an agent unless you already have a website with a blog and an established email list. Like if you don't have, if you're a fiction, if you're a fiction writer without 2000 names on an email list, they don't even want to talk. The agents don't even want to talk to you. Well, but you know, you think about that too. It's like, I remember somebody was saying that they were looking at having somebody do a video for their uh, cameras for the Kickstarter, or it was for something they wanted a video done. And they had two people, both were equal, but one of them had a huge Instagram following. Yep. So he's like, well, of course I'm going to hire the Instagram person because they are, because <laughs> they're going to bring value by sending at least some other people my way. It may not be right. everybody, but it's like, so I think the same kind of thing. It's like you, if you don't have anything, you know, the, your risk, you know, as, as people as we would say, um, you know, a pig in a poke. Have you ever heard that term? Yes. Well, my people are from West Virginia, so I know <laughs> yeah. I, I'm very, very well. <laughs> yeah. So you're just a pig in a poke. You just, you don't know. Right. You're a pig in a bag. Nobody knows what it, you can't even see it. So right. the idea is, you know, you know, and the same thing, you know, like, you know, it's kind of like even like with, you say with Gary's appendix, sometimes it, it's large enough, but it's like, you know, some people already have an established audience and there's, yeah. there's value in having somebody write because they will bring some of that over. Yep. Well, especially if you're aligning, if you're in this, if you're aligning the, the audiences, if, if you have, if you're, if you're part of the same audience or there's some overlap of audience, because another thing you you do have to be careful about the the social media people, you know, some, just because somebody has 10,000 Instagram followers, doesn't mean any of those people are right. going to be part of, are going to be interested, interested in you. Cause like I have a pretty small, a small, but growing newsletter, email newsletter list. Uh, but my email open rate is 60% with a 20% click through and your email marketers will tell you like a 20% open rate is freaking great. Right. And I'm killing that by three, three X. So I have very good engagement with my audience. My audience cares about what I send them every month enough to open the email and then read the email. And then if there's an essay in there, which I usually click, throw something in there for everybody, um, they're clicking through and reading that. So I'm grabbing somebody's attention for at least 45 minutes every month. Right. Cause you could, you could pay Madonna a million dollars to publicize your, your newsletter and right. you get a, you might get a million people for the very first one to open it. And then they'll never see another one ever open that again. Other than Correct. previous followers. Yes. So the, 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 the social media follower count is, is not, it's not, it's not nothing. Right. But it is, but it is a it is a, a metric that you have to have in context with other metrics, like open rates and click through rates and right. And and uh and does that does that person convert into a customer at the bottom of the funnel or are they just sort of in the top of the funnel? 
Yeah, and that then that is true. And it's kind of like even interesting with the I mentioned before, it's like even with YouTube and with uh the anchor, it's like it, it's 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 by by it's kind of a little bit of a tangent, but definitely like the the anchor people, at least the audio, I think are much more consistent and um that's what I'm looking for. Uh like there's a certain group of people that will, there's a large group of people that will listen to it the very first day it drops. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, but then when I go to YouTube, it's all over the map. It's like that audience is, is, you know, I'm not going to say there's some people who are pretty dedicated to listening to it, but it's a very small amount that's dedicated to listening to, to that. So, right. Even your social media can vary. Somebody could have a lot of, you know, people on YouTube, but they, Mm -hmm. those may not be that, people that had engaged right well and youtube is a weird critter too because there is a bunch of stuff that you can do to improve your youtube channel that you would that doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense until you start digging into it just changing your thumbnail can change everything changing the title of your Thing can change your view count by exponential. It's it's insane how much of a difference. Um, just changing titles and and thumbnail will blow up a, a video that had been a dog before. Well, I do know myself. Uh, like I'll go through YouTube, and what will catch my interest are there's a there's a, there's a guy who's a who's a street musician. And he'll say, you know, this per, you know, see this person's reaction when they, you know, after they asked to hear, you know, da da da, or this person, you know, stranger just killed. Right. It. And I find myself like, I'll I'll click those, even though I know they're the clickiest, clickbaity. Yep, they're still good, but still, it's like yep. I'm ignoring all the other stuff. But yeah. for some reason, these all caps, and I like, yep. and it's like it, you're right. There is a science behind it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 definitely a thing where you can you can do. It's a really interesting platform. I've been working on it lately, and and it's it's. I I actually am convinced that if you want to build an engaged audience or really a community, that that's probably the best place to be. You know, that's the one I've put my least amount of energy. And I have too, until like the last <laughs> month or so, I've kind of avoided it. And I'm like, nah, I need to, because just posting three videos has caused me to go, oh, I see how, I, I see what these other people were talking about now. I really got to be serious about this. Um, yeah, because it can be pretty significant. Because I've noticed is like, there's certain people, it will, the numbers will definitely crank up. Like there, yep. it, it definitely, and it could also be other things too. It could be my title, it could be the subject matter. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, there can be some tremendous amount of engagement with that. Yep. Yep. For sure. Uh, so what were the other things I did? Uh, so there was just craft classes. There was a dialogue class. There was a, a class. There was a, a writer who writes mysteries, like crime mysteries. Um, so I guess the question is no, and I don't know. Do you, do you write adventures? Uh, I'm working on right now. I have a project that I'm getting close to finishing. 
and it is what I called a campaign seed. Yeah. And what it is, it's a setting, but it's only a fairly small area around. It's this one town, uh, some small factions within that town, the major NPCs there, and then uh, some other powerful forces that are sort of uh, causing problems for that town. Yeah. That are not that are that are in the region around the town. So it's basically a uh, the reason I call it a campaign seed because it's a bunch of NPCs who are in conflict with one another, locations where adventure could happen, and then you drop it on a map, and it's a it's a bottom up. It's basically everything you would need to to do a bottom up campaign without the stuff outside of the small region, right? right? So if it's basically a DM could take this, read it, print out the reference sheets for it, and then introduce their players into there. As a, it's a sandbox, is what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a campaign. It's a small little sandbox for you to start players in a campaign. And then once you sort of get, well, they're really interested in this thing that's going on. I'll, I'll develop that more. Right. Right. So that's really how I run my campaigns now. But I guess the question is, so you're going and they're talking about writing mysteries. Yes. And you write adventures. Yes. So I'm assuming since you're writing different things, you're probably are you're analyzing probably what you're hearing through several different filters at the same time. Yes. So I I do have an interest in writing fiction. Um, So I'm going to when I finish this project, I'm going to do some fiction. And then do some other game stuff, and it's going to be a sort of mix and mash back and forth. Um, There are some principles that you can take from storytelling and apply them to gaming um and then there are certain things in gaming that just don't translate over because especially especially if you have my viewpoint about it where i am very adamantly and outspokenly a person who says that tabletop role-playing games are story creation not storytelling yeah however there's a caveat you do get to tell stories through a game but the story that you're telling is the context that leads up to the point that the players are dropped into the situation, right? right? So you're telling the story of the dungeon up to the point that the players arrive you're, there. You're writing the pro, the prologue's written. Right. Correct. But I guess the question I'm saying is, so when you're going to these, in and I know some things don't necessarily translate well, but I guess the question is you're going to these writing uh, workshop from a person, say, who's writing for not not traditional uh, fantasy or nonfiction, but you're just writing for um, for for usage at the table for games. How useful do you find? You know, like, you know, they're talking about of dialogue and, and about mysteries and these various seminars. How useful do you find it for? if you're just strictly looking through the prism of of uh writing for desktop rpgs it really varies 
I would say the, and, and I would say a lot of it is not particularly useful. Okay. Um, the, the pieces that I would say that are useful or understanding um, character and characterization, um, understanding theme and motif, and those are two different things, and people get those mixed up all the time. Um, understanding how to, because like you can, Insert you can insert theme into a setting into a to a to role playing game. You do that by your villains, yes, or some of the other NPCs in the. But you do that by your villains because in, in fiction, the way theme works is your protagonist is sort of carrying the theme. So in Conan stories that Robert Howard wrote, he's basically saying that. Um, civilization is weak and soft and barbarism is the natural state of humanity and that's what we're always going to revert back to and barbarism is more honest and more um, at least appealing in a certain sense yeah so he carries that he it's like you put that theme on a card and he kind of carries it around through the story embodying it and but but howard never few times he tells you that in a convert in the dialogue where conan says i don't get you civilized dogs always telling lies mm -hmm. and claiming to be you know something something um occasionally conan says it but usually it's howard showing you that conan is superior in these three ways so he's carrying the theme along but the anti-theme is the sorcerer or the corrupt priest or the um ambitious general who's backstabbing his king or whatever um the sorcerer is the opposite is the flip side of that theme so you can do that in your games i do that in my games all the time i've had um you know, villains who were one of the, probably the theme of my, not my current campaign, but the previous campaign was uh, from a line by a, a poet, uh, the real world, the world, not as we, the world, as we really, the world, as it really is, is not good against evil, but bad against worse. And so all of my, NPCs that were in positions of power were all bad and some of them were worse. And in order to defeat them, the players would have to ally themselves with somebody who was bad in order to defeat somebody who was worse, or they would have to behave in ways that were worse or bad in order to defeat the, the, the other guy. Right. Right. So they're like, oh, this guy is doing terrible, awful things. And if we play fair, if we do the good guy thing, we're all going to die. <laughs> it's just how it's going to go. We can see it. It's obvious. It's apparent. Our tactical situation or strategic situation is we have to go and do awful, terrible things in order to defeat somebody who's doing even worse things. Well, it's interesting because we're watching um, 
my wife and I, uh, we're, we're slowly going through the blacklist. Have you ever seen that? Uh, but the, the basic world's most wanted man, Raymond Reddington, turns himself into the FBI. Okay. And so basically, he's got a list of of uh, he's got a list of like the the worst of the worst, and so he gets the FBI to to do to go after these people. But he's also gaining, and you're not sure exactly how he's gaining by that. Right. You know, yeah. so it's kind of like, yeah. you know, it, it's that whole idea where the, they're having the the good guys are having to make these these morally questionable decisions, right, all the time. But yeah. they're allying themselves with somebody who's bad, but to to drive against people who are worse. Or uh, another good film, uh, uh, like that would be uh, Training Day, where the Ethan Hawke's character. Is this ambitious young guy who wants to be part of this anti-narcotics squad, but then finds out that oh, these guys are all dirty and they're corrupt like and they're using drugs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty it's a pretty common theme, and so that's one of the things about these these um, classes that you can take is you know there are these situations where. Once you start, to, there are patterns in story, right? So, and once you under start to understand the, the patterns of how these things work and you understand the conflict and how conflict works in a story and how dilemma works in a story, uh, you can start creating adventures and um, settings and situations that have the same, because you're basically doing act one of a book you're doing the setup when you run it when you create an adventure you're creating the situation right like, here's the situation and then when you're a storyteller you get to decide what the characters are going to do but if you're playing role-playing game that's the point where you hand it off to the players and they go, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this. And then the combination of the game system and what you, as a game master, what you know about the world, the setting, and how it would logically respond to the actions of the players, that um, narrative emerges out of those, that bit of story you created, the gameplay, and then the outcomes from the gameplay mediated by logic, common right. sense, and, and the rules. So then at the end, a story emerges out of that, but not in the middle of it, which is what which is what 90% of the awful game mastering advice that you see everywhere on the internet, people talking about, well, you gotta tell your story. No, that's absolutely wrong absolutely wrong that is then a interactive narrative like a zork book or uh or or do you pick path a path b or path c and they all end up in the same place anyway it's, right it's not a game that's a puzzle right and i think the idea is and i think ultimately i mean what's what's you know i think as a gm uh I want to be surprised. Yeah. And that's, I think that's really where the, the best of the, of the games 
is the ones where everybody at the table surprised. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and if you've and if you've mapped out what that path is going to be through the game, then, <laughs> yeah. then, then you're not surprised. You're not surprised. No. You can't be surprised. You gotta allow that that element of uh of like I don't know what this, and I think that's again I, I mentioned before in, in Vice, but I think you know when you when you have a like an adventure path, that's where I think those problems can occur. Yep, absolutely. And um, because they're all plotted events, they're yeah. interactive narratives. They're not games. Yeah, and I think you know probably the the best campaign series I've ever ran uh, was a hack of uh, Blades in the Dark, and it's just because every the, it, everything was made up. But it was always made up after whatever the result was of the previous heist. Right. It's like, well, I don't know. So I just, a lot of times, I wouldn't even know what I was going to do. I just would say, I need to get these people to the scene. I have the scene in the mind, but I don't know what what that will happen. You know, they need to be, right. you know, or whatever the scenario situation is. And after that, it's like, I don't know. It's really not to me to decide how this turns out. Right. And and you do have certain certain game formats that are a little bit more trickier than say a sandbox game. Um, you know, like an investigation, like in Call of Cthulhu or a murder mystery game, where you do have you have some pretty you have some known things. You have a body. <laughs> it's not a murder mystery unless there's a murder. Right. Somebody murdered that person. There are clues to the murder that the players are supposed to find and then put together that mystery. And, and then conf- and then the question at the end is, will they find the killer? Will they catch the killer and bring them to justice? Those, those are kind of the three questions that you get out of a mystery, uh, an investigation. And you know, my feeling is, is from that, this is what the killer did, you know, that, that moment, moment of the murder forward should be a little bit vague. You should know, okay, if the they start to get close, the murderer is going to do respond in some way. That's, that's a reasonable thing to, to sort of plot out. They're going, oh, they've gotten close. Oh, the murders, the guy comes through the door with a gun. Right. Um, right. That's, but that's a triggered event that doesn't necessarily happen. Right. Um, and you, and that's, I think, acceptable because that's like, oh, I decided to take this path through the dungeon because there were blood, there was bloody footprints that went through there. You know, for whatever reason, I decided to go that way right. because there was a clue for me to follow. Not because I picked, flipped the coin and said one, two, three. Um, you know, there's there's actually a reason that the player, you know, player agency was was preserved, uh, and just because you have a linear, you can draw it on a linear path, finds the clues, figures out who the murderer is, catches murderer. Just, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to come to those points in a to b they might go a to f to g yeah and and the and the game master has to kind of let that happen I and it's to, hard to do 
I one thing I thought about doing is you could always just say these are all the things are, are bits of information and list all the information and then whatever the um whatever the players do and how they approach it then you determine how you dole out that information yeah that's hard it takes a lot of of, of yeah. you know like you know maybe breaking into a house they'd have seen a picture of these two people together but maybe if they're if i if i understand it correctly uh that is the way the gumshoe system works the gum what the gumshoe system does is it generally makes it super easy to find clues okay it doesn't necessarily the clues are there uh, and you 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 generally have an easy time finding clues but the hard part is because to, to their their premise was or is that finding clues is the least interesting thing. But figuring out what those clues mean, that's yeah. what's interesting. Like, yeah, you, you know, having to like figure out where this because, you know, it's like even we're playing Call of Cthulhu now with my my son, his friend and a, a friend of mine. And it's just like, you know, it's it's kind of weird. It's very easy to miss stuff. You miss, start missing roles. Oh, yeah. They do a pretty good job, but that's where the call Cthulhu can mess up is you don't find the necessary clues. And that's not very satisfying. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they put they put um keys behind dice rolls, which is I think yeah. and not behind player decisions. And I think what they've done recently, I mean, we've been playing is they seem to provide enough clue. There's so many clues that you're you're still going to be likely finding stuff, right? And, and so that's kind of I think how they're they're solving. But I, I think the problem I'm finding with these is I can pretty much figure out what the deal is. Mm -hmm. Like who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Who who needs a forty five uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. between the eyes? It's just like. <laughs> But yeah. there's, there's Brendawood Bay. Is have you ever played Brendawood Bay? No, I've heard about it. I haven't. I haven't played it. It's it's basically. Uh, have you ever played any of the Powered by the Apocalypse games? Uh, a long time ago. So it's uh, so you base the the players roll for degrees of it's either failure, partial success, or full success. It's very fun, but the thing is, is the killer has not been determined. It's like Schrodinger's oh. cat. You have all these suspects. They do right. all the inspection. And once they find so many clues, then they make their guess. And right. then they roll and they roll to determine whether they're right or not. And then if they not, it keeps going. Yeah, I don't know. I would like that. <laughs> I, I thought it wouldn't work, but it it the players were fine with it. Right. But the people I played with, for the most part, never played RPGs before. But oh, one person yeah. really loved it. The problem is, is that you have all these clues that are just, they're, they're meaningless clues. Yeah. But then they put these clues together. And then it's all of a sudden, it creates its own sense. sense uh, but it creates its own set of mysteries. So, the, so right. now you've done this. And you're like, well, why was, why was this COD? in these in these boxes ice cod being sent to this house and why it and it leads people wanting to explore things that you just were just making up on the fly they had nothing to do right. with anything right and well and, and that tells you and that tells you about 
games and stories. It yeah. really does because like people, human beings are pattern recognition and story yes, generation yes, yes, simulators, yes, yes. right? Yes. Because oh, yeah. we we will take, like you're saying, four randomly generated things <laughs> and create a narrative in our brain about how how did <laughs> these four things connected? How did the how did this it, well, there is the box of toothpaste <laughs> in that other place that we found. And, and you're like, toothpaste. And that other guy was using the same toothpaste. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I, that toothpaste isn't sold nowhere else in the United States, but this one town in Vermont. So they must have been in Vermont at that same time. Right. You know, it's just like. <laughs> they were in the same hotel. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we just did it right here. Right. We just invented a narrative. Yeah about toothpaste and fish that we just pulled out of the ether yeah and 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 so which is actually and it was actually a somewhat plausible connection (laughs) right oh these two guys that stayed in the same bed and breakfast yeah yeah and this weird old lady buys this strange toothpaste that's only sold in europe because when she was on her vacation in europe yeah really liked it right so you can see how story can be generated through play, which is what always drives me nuts about the I'm telling my story types of GMs. Like you're working to just out of pure laziness mm-hmm. as a GM, you could, you could spend an hour just generating stuff. Yeah, because the stuff that was provided, the list of clues, they provided it for the scenario. They provide a list of clues. Right. But the clues are nothing more than just items. They don't right. mean anything. They're objects. Yeah. They're, they, they're, they're objects without context. Yeah. And then, then the players create the context. Or you might put it into context. Right. And the players are trying to derive a meaning out of it. Right. So that, I mean, that that would be what I would consider a story generation engine. Really? Yeah. Is, is so what the players are doing is they're generating a story that did not previously exist where i would say what the osr is kind of doing is they're creating more of the story and then generating right. the rest of it now the problem with brendwood bay is you created all these interesting hooks that led people to this right but the, there's nothing in the game that allows you to explore those hooks after you've finished the session right Right, the, it's the a, mechanics it's a one, aren't there. One and done. Yeah, and you could do the next one because it's it's basically the the premise is uh, I think it was it murder she wrote. So uh-huh. these old women murder book club, they solve they solve mysteries. Right, and it's like a, a new episode every every right. week. Yeah, so it's a cozy mystery kind of yes. story generator. Right, and they're probably episodic, sort of one not connected to the other. Completely not, episodic. Not pers- yes. Yeah, and they're not persistent. No, it's you know, and if you're into that sort of thing, some people are, some people, some people that would not, that would not amuse my game group more than one or two sessions. No, I could go. Yeah, well, this is kind of okay. You could, I think, if you wanted to try and make some sort of connection, it wouldn't be that hard. But yeah, it is. It is. It definitely did what it did pretty well. But the problem is, it was a tremendous amount of cognitive load on me trying to interpret things and wrangle things this whole time. Right. Well, and the other thing that I have 
I personally dislike about a lot of the of the um, powered by apocalypse and games like that is in in my experience most of the time somebody when you give a group of six people narrative control invariably somebody plays a wrong note and you're like suddenly why is there a uh, stunning mallet in the um pantry i mean i mean it's like some somebody throws something weird that is dissonant into the into the game and i always and it's and it's just probably it's just me or just my preference but i have a hard time like it screws me up because then i can't i'm like what I'm, you know, we've moved on and I'm still back here going, wait, what, why? But, well, but that's the same thing, but that's good true with any game. You, you're like, say you're playing a serious mystery game and everybody's naming their characters. And my, my character's name is Colonel Sanders. And you're like, well, <laughs> wait a minute. Like, yeah. Or my name's Ronald McDonald. It's like, it's hard. It, it kind of breaks. And that is kind of hard. Yeah. You're right. So whenever you have, that's the problem. The more people you have, the harder it can be to keep the theme of the game or the tone of the game from from going. You know, if you're wanting a straight a, a game to meet certain criteria, it's very difficult with more. Right. People you have. Yeah. When you when you have a when you have a game where the the players have more narrative control over the over the setting and what's going on outside of their own individual characters. Uh, that removes a constraint which your more traditional style of game has well it's like it's interesting one that does that in a way that they i think doesn't have to break it but i think it's it is it present fantasies one of them there is you name a truth about your character Mm -hmm. and that truth is the truth it's like or it's an item right and but it could be anything. It's like you know the cloak I wear is from a you know from a, a god who who died you know ten millennia ago and such and such and and that is a truth that that is unalterable. But it, I don't think it necessarily has mechanical effects in the game. But it right. definitely but you but it does give the opportunity for somebody just to to just like be stupid and uh, <laughs> yeah. And ruin it for you know that you're trying to create a certain tone, and all of a sudden, yeah, it's a happy meal, and I've got a I got a I got a toy whistle in there, and some yeah. stickers, and some uh, uh, fake tattoos, and it's like no, no, yeah, well, and and the and and if it's you know some of these games, and and a lot of those games are designed to be run a certain way, yeah, and if you divert from that, you're like. You go, no, we're going to do a house rule and we're going to change it. Totally changes the game. And so you can't do a house rule. You have to basically run it the way oh, right. they designed it. Well, you're right. But I think you're right. And I think the thing is, it's like, it, but going back to, I know this is going to be really jumping the rails, like Monopoly. <laughs> yep. I hate that game. I hate that game. But then somebody pointed out, I was reading, that one of the worst things you can do is... uh throw money into uh free parking yes and it's like well if you don't do that and you also make sure that people when you land on a property and it's not been purchased 
that it goes up for sale, that anybody can, they can bid on it. Those two items alone will make the actual, that's the way the game is intended to be ran, but you take those out, the game goes on forever. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and it, and it becomes a lot more, I mean, it's already a pretty random game to begin with. Um, right. Because you're either, you're right. The, it is, because especially if everybody plays it like they should, you should be buying up all the properties, mortgaging yourself to the, mortgaging yourself to the hilt if you need to in order to just be able to just suppress your other people with having to pay you money all the time. But yeah, right. you're right. You can only really buy the properties either you land on or that comes available for sale. I think uh, probably the only strategy is if you know your other people, if you know somebody's not going to be buying properties, you know, then you will. And I guess there's the wheeling and dealing too. Yeah. But you're right. It, it's, if people just don't really wheel and deal, it's just pretty random. It's a, it's, it's, it shoots and ladders. Yeah. Pretty close to it. <laughs> but, but I think too, it's interesting is, you know, the, but there's just similar things. I think even with even other games, like, you know, we do, it, it, it's kind of like people, the hot topic is uh, the, the, uh, um, the fumbles and the crits. Yeah. Well, oh. I've kind of not, Paid any? I paid as little attention to one D and D as I absolutely can. Well, what's interesting um, is what they're saying is, you know, monsters cannot crit, but player characters can. And people are kind of like freaking out. But then I'm I've been listening to OSR people. Uh, there's a couple people, and they and they they've been, is not related to this. They're saying having a crit is on a twenty is just a, is bad because it over there's more opportunities for criticals against players than there is against monsters. Because That's true. Yeah. Because if you, because if you, especially if you have say, you know, 10 goblins attacking three adventurers. Yeah. Right. And, and say you have a group of third or fourth level adventurers could take on a dozen goblins. No problem. Um, Maybe they'll get a few bad dice rolls in there, but probably, especially if you have a wizard in the bunch, they're going to take care of a dozen goblins in, a, in four or five rounds. Um, but if you have 12 dice rolls, every other round, you're going to have a crit. Mathematically. Yeah. Because you have 12 attack rolls for the goblins. Every 20 dice rolls, there's going to be one crit mathematically because it's even distribution. So every two rounds, there's going to be a crit on the, on a, on a player character. Well, if player care, that's, you could, if that game, if that fight goes four rounds, that's going to be two crits. And if it's on the same character, well, maybe that character dies. Yeah. And if it's on two characters, eh, that's going to be bad or at least not good. Uh, it's going to have a significant impact on the fight. So I don't, run i don't use crits or i don't do auto crits or auto fail um with 20 in yeah. my house rules um, but but it just goes to show that you know it, it's easy to kind of like make a little tweak and think it's fun but you can drastically alter the game yep yeah i mean you look at the the, the crit tables in uh dcc or uh or, or hackmaster you know where you've got crazy stuff that can happen and 
like and especially dcc where you get character in the higher levels or monsters that are higher levels where their crit range increases where it's not just a 20 it's 20 to 25 or whatever it is and they're rolling on a d24 plus they get pluses and everything else um you, know, you get these crazy you can have insane fights with three and four crits back and forth very quickly yeah but i think that's the intent of the game so that's based in the mechanics to be that it way. is it is yeah for sure and but i think it's it's just uh it's very easy i mean i think the thing is is all the way from the the very beginnings we we you know of the hobby we were house ruling yes well it, you know basically that's what the hobby was <laughs> it was house exactly. ruled. This is, it was this house gary's ruled. rules we're playing with gary's rules <laughs> it was house ruled it was it was it was a, yeah. it was a series of experiments yeah. where they said, "Well, what if we took this thing from this game and this thing from this other game, and put it together, and oh yeah, we really like Harvey or Roger Corman movies, and we'll throw that in there." And you know, it. I, I almost I I sometimes say that Dave Arneson discovered tabletop role playing games. He didn't design. He didn't invent them. The, the the guys in they, they they're like they just picked up a they just picked up the right rock and and there it was you know <laughs> it was like yeah but they just tried the right combination of of techniques and play style and said oh this is cool let's let's follow this thread yeah it's kind of interesting because i mean obviously we all we all did we all role played when we were younger yeah and there's a set of rules, I mean, that we followed. I don't know how we decided who was actually shot and who the bullets missed, but we we would somehow come up with some sort of like figuring out, oh, I guess I'm hit and I'm going down. Well, I guess I'm wounded to the leg and I'm not dead. <laughs> it's yep. like <laughs> yep. so we, we 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 grew beyond that, but I'm trying to think if there was other things. I think probably the closest thing would be probably would would have just been like but stand-up comedy is probably the only other thing that's kind of spontaneous i don't know there's really anything as adults that we do that would that would be spontaneous as far as generating um you know like gameplay but i don't think there is improv theater yeah <laughs> improv you know sort of improv sketch kind of stuff um You know, and, and doing sort of story prompts and that sort of thing as well can sometimes have that same sort of game-like characteristic if you're doing a story, a group story prompt sometimes because we did some stuff. Because one of the things that some of the, um, like the, the, the Forge narrative first kind of games remind me of is the the activities that we would do sometimes in some of my creative writing classes in college they would there would be a there would somebody would start with a writing prompt and then the first person would say something and then the next person would add on to that and the next person would add on to that and you had to you had to retain everything that came before you but you could do pretty much whatever you wanted with what and when you added on your piece and there's a bunch of different sort of activities like that that you can do um that are very similar 
Yeah, that's kind of interesting. So I guess the question is, you probably want, for those types of things, and I guess this is probably the same thing for games, and maybe even for maybe writing in general, it's like you want a consistent flow, but then you, you're going to definitely want some twists. You can't have twists all the time. Otherwise, you wind up with the TV series Heroes. But you, <laughs> and nobody wants that. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's a hero. He's a bad guy. He's a villain. He's a good guy. He's a villain. He's a good guy. It's like, just stop. <laughs> and I think that's probably even true. I mean, now I think about that, probably for adventure design and, and things like that, the idea is probably makes a good idea to even have some sort of twist somewhere in there because that's pretty much common with most even TV shows and movies. Yeah. Yeah, there's something surprising that occurs. Yeah. And that can be difficult to create. Yeah. I mean, I guess even Star Wars, I uh, find out Darth Vader's his father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if if you, uh, we've kind of gone all over the place. I don't know if you have any other questions about the, the workshop. It, it, was there anything out? Cause you, you said there's, I think uh, one of the things you mentioned was flexibility and you said that you felt that the small press, at least as far as the, uh, I don't know if you said specifically, but that, 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 you think, if I recall correctly, that that the uh, role playing game we'll call it press does a, is a lot more nimble in it in a way that adapts. What uh, what I noticed was there seemed to be less awareness of the print on demand options. Um. Are you saying that because the, of, of because what people are, are stating from the workshop? Or are you saying just from your conversations with people? Both. Like there seemed to be a limited awareness about. It seemed like the focus was everybody was trying to maintain, trying to stay inside the traditional publishing model as much as they possibly could. And it seemed like. And maybe it was just this conference because it is an awful lot of it was focused on literary fiction and memoir and not sort of the, I guess, the NPR crowd, um, the the sort of people who read the New Yorker and the Atlantic yeah. Monthly uh, was sort of that. There, there was some genre fiction people there for sure, like the murder mystery lady and the and the um, some, the, the crime writer I I visited with, and but a. I would say most of the stuff was memoir, narrative nonfiction, literary fiction. And that crowd very much is trying to stay inside of the traditional publishing model of there is a writer, there is a publisher with their editors and all it's, and they didn't seem, there was almost no talk about self-publishing it was acknowledged it was like yeah this is a thing it's real it's serious it's and then you know the book there was a one of the sessions i went to was with uh some independent book store owners and uh they're very much aware of self publishing and how that's and small press publishing and how that's kind of changed the business um, because they work with a lot of 
self-published and small press people. So they're, uh, they're a lot more aware of the book, the people selling books out of hand seem to be a lot more with it than the, some of the writers and some of the, and some of the other. Um, well, it takes, it takes, uh, I mean, if you're, there's a couple ways of doing that. I mean, one is just the, the technical aspect if you're doing it yourself right of it's not easy no. but then you can also pay somebody to design yep. your cover and yep. and upload your your files and and that's not cheap so there's no. i think there's an there's a up cost and there's an up cost uh upfront cost that maybe right. those people aren't wanting to pay right well and that's well and if you're doing so there is a weird and it's it's weird to me because it seems like the people in some of these genres who are most it seems like the majority of the books in certain genres are self-published now like in terms of like just total numbers there's more romance fantasy and certain uh like murder genre that sort of stuff i would say if you if you said Here's 100% of the books in the genre being published today. The traditional pub is like this, and the bulk of it is really self-pub because the traditional publishers in the genres are not spending the money. They're not developing authors. They're not doing marketing, and they won't talk to you unless you've already built your own audience. Yeah. They don't want... so. You are you almost it's getting to the point, I think, in order to get us a, a real book deal where you can actually make real money. You have to develop a, as a career as a self-published writer. With a good audience who has the potential to be a superstar. Well, what's right? interesting is the superstars are actually trying to venture out. Yeah. And so. So then you're really, yeah, so now you're in the situation where it's like. You you gotta be successful enough for them to 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 capture you, but if you're too successful, they'll you'll those people will leave them too. Or or potentially. I mean yeah. in the future. Yeah. Well, because Brandon Sanderson has like 30 people working for him, you know, doing whatever bunches of different, you know, whatever tasks he needs them to do to move his books along. Um, you know, but you can but there are people uh, I'm on a Facebook group called Wide for the Win where uh, it's all self-published authors who are um, selling books in a bunch of different online formats. Yeah. Uh, or online locations across the world. And they're making, it's, it's fascinating to me that there are people who are, I've known people with traditional publishing contracts who make less money than self-pub writers and have to have work day jobs like they're, they've got a contract with penguin or st martin's or whoever and they have a day job because they can't make enough of a living off of their book sales when they should all they should have to do is just write and then their publisher should do the, their agent their publishers yeah. taking the rest care of the rest of it but then there are self-published authors working in the exact same genre doing their own their own marketing 
hiring their own editors, hiring out their cover artists, doing all the stuff that the big four or big five used to do and making more money than than traditional publication. Yeah, and I think if you look at two, it's like I even look at Kickstarters and you know, if you if you look at a you know as as a person who's you know produced material and then Kickstarters, I look at other people's Kickstarters and I kind of try and evaluate like how well did they actually do when it's all said and done. And and there are people who have ran some Kickstarters that that didn't look like it did overly great. But when I look at it, it's like actually margin wise, they did pretty good. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if they could do that four or five times a year, they're actually making really good money. Yeah, it's and like the guy with the hot dog stand, yeah. you know, you're like he's got fifty cents in that dog, but he yeah. sold it for two bucks. Yeah. Exactly. He's selling a bunch of hot dogs. But then you look at some of these others, it's like, wow, it looks like they got like, you know, you know, fifty thousand or thirty thousand. Then you like you're looking at exactly what they're printing, large books, lots of art. And you're like, you know, so where I think, you know, probably the same thing with with the publishing with there, it's like it and even going we were talking earlier but people weren't listening it's even like with movies like there's a guy who figured out a formula it's like he'll make these like five million dollar movies you know all day long whatever i can't remember what the amount was and it couldn't go over and he made lots of money on right. those lots of money but he would make a lot of them and they were low budget and it just wasn't attractive to the bigger studios but i think there is opportunities and because when you were talking about so you were talking about being nimble. I am right. nimble. Maybe you uh, right. I think I think I think adapting, adapting. Or, or, ado or adopting adopting a, the thing that I really saw was there was no in, in the business sessions, and I only went to a couple. Um, there was no conversation about Kickstarter at all. Period. Not nobody ever talked about it. Nobody mentioned it. Um. There was very little conversation about self-pub and it was kind of almost like it, it was, it wasn't suggest. It was like, yeah, you can do it. And yeah, you can make a living at it. And I don't know whether that was like a snob, a, a cultural snobbery thing where it's like, Oh yes, we're all writers and we have our fancy contracts with, you know, St. Martin's press and, and random house. Or, or if it was just simply an ignorance, it didn't seem like there was a lot of awareness of all the possibilities of direct of direct to consumer among writers and uh, like the like the ways that you could get around even Amazon or. Uh, um, the big the big publishing systems where it seems like in the independent RPG community they figured it out like there are people making a living at it Kevin Crawford <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Bonnie Cook <laughs> right you know maybe they're not killing it but they're, you know, they're, they're, maybe they're not buying a second yeah. house in, in, in Florida, I, but, you know, but yeah, you know, you can, if you're, if you're like working a day job as a 
where some a guy in a warehouse like I was doing, you know, or if you're making, you know, unless you're doing something pretty uh, technical or very skill oriented these days, you can make a lot more money working for yourself, self-publishing your own work or, or freelancing than you can doing a paid salary job. I think there's opportunities um, and that's, you know, and I've, you know, whatever I do, I do the math. Um, but I do think there is opportunities. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about too, it's like, I don't know. I don't see really many people doing it with, with RPGs, but I, I'm really tempted to see if there's a market for tying uh, fiction in with um, Kickstarters. There is. Uh Brandon Sanderson. Now he's a big name. No, and no, I mean with RPG Kickstarters. Oh, oh, oh. So like doing a RPG, like a game, and then having a, a novel or a collection of anthology or something. Yeah, exactly. Go like, go, wanna, go with it. Is yeah, it, is so it part like, of a bundle? Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily be a part of might be an add-on. But I you know, right. that's another thing. It's like, well, that's something I was thinking about. Like, well, if I, you know, put like the writing rates were poor right. I mean. The writing rates are the writing rates. So whether it's for RPGs or for novels, and yep. it's just like I, you know, that's something I was thinking about. Like, well, if you're if I'm doing a post-apocalyptic, you know, uh, thing, you know, what about doing a series of stories or a novella involving whatever that setting is? Yep. You know, I'm wondering. I'm not really seeing that really being, of course. There's probably many, many reasons. The only thing I, one of the things I can think of is, you know, if something were to be done, it, it, for most people, it's probably not a lot of like margins. Like, you know, like Monty Cook, you know, most people are going to be buying the core books. Yep. You know, does it does it pay for him to, you know, divest resource or you know invest his resources for that rate of return? But but I was just thinking, but for a small publisher, that's something that could be dabbled in, and that's. That might be an opportunity. That is my long-term plan, is to build a campaign setting uh, or a game around a campaign setting. I'm not exact. I haven't quite decided yet, but th the basic general notion is to build a campaign setting, a story world in fiction, in fiction, in the in the what what what's called a story world and certain uh businesses film and books oh, they use the term story world a lot um design a story world have an rpg product set in that story world and then tell stories in that world in different formats books short stories independent comics i might even do some if if I can scrape up the cash to do it, maybe even a video game at some point. Um, but that's the long-term goal of what I'm doing with my thing. So what I'm thinking is, is I think you're thinking about having and developing a, a overarching IP and then, then spinning different things off with those, the IP, right? Yes. The 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 technical term is called transmedia. Okay. Um, which is basically you have a big story that you chop up into little pieces and you tell different parts of the big story 
through the different pieces depending on so what i'm thinking uh is is actually the opposite okay what i'm thinking about there's lots of that there's a lot of different ways to to do it (laughs) well just because it comes to my addled brain at you know four o'clock in the afternoon after uh spending a day putting uh dumpster fires out uh, <laughs> uh at work it doesn't mean it's legit but i was thinking and actually talking to adam um about um as ideas that is maybe develop the world through small projects yeah sure well i guess not not much different than what you were talking about with your um with your uh you, you talk about starting like sometimes starting small don't worry about your map at first right. and fell out. But I started thinking it's like um you know one was uh that I would do the 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 thought was it's um thought with Adam Kovac was a science fiction setting and doing um in doing um like a story to go with it. But then I you know he's like well you know he kind of talked about a lot of times if you are um you want to have stuff developed to give to your writers. But then I started thinking, well, but you could also do kind of like, I guess what they did it with Frog God is they just paid writers to write stuff. And then they, you know, they built up the the lore. I, I don't want to be that haphazard, but right. necessarily, but it's like, well, you know, well, there's, there's, there's been things like that done before. Um, so if you look at thieves world, there, uh, which the first couple books in that series are fantastic. And there was a role-playing game made out of that. Um, Thieves World was, they sort of set us, they created a city yeah, with some stuff going on in it. And then each, and then they would assign a story to each writer. Yeah. And they they had I don't remember all the rules about it, but they had a set of rules, and they said you can't kill another guy's character unless they say it's okay, and you have to follow within these guidelines. But each writer sort of added to the the to the story of the thieves' world. Right. Uh, George Martin, before he became famous for uh, Song of Ice and Fire, had a thing called wild cards yeah um that he did with roger zelazny and some other people that actually came i think out of like a gurp supers game um i remember the lore of that a little bit better and that was another similar sort of shared world kind of thing where you have sort of an established sort of kernel to the story world uh to the setting and then you go Hey, I want you to make this part of the story world and do something with it, or this character and do something with it. And then here's the rules. As long, here's the constraints. As long as you stay within those constraints, do what you want. Yeah, because I was thinking too. It's like I could do like a general, like say with a traveler, but same thing with the, with the post-apocalyptic is do kind of like a traveler style zine, but then put in specific things to write up. You know, yeah. whether it be the planets, mm-hmm. corporations, NPCs, right, and then over time, that that all gets developed, and right, and then at the end, I've got a setting. I mean, I that's kind of in a way the way I sort of develop my campaigns when I'm really serious about it 
uh, is I start with like the big picture stuff, like what are the most powerful entities? And that might just be, so like say in a traveler kind of game or, or sci-fi, it would be, you know, the Wutani Corp. And that's right. it. And it's, and that'll be all it gets. It's a, a name of a company on an index card and I slap it down. And then their, their, their competitor, the, you know, colonial, authorities or what you know what you you put the biggest the most powerful players and then you sort of go okay well what's what are the conflicts between what what does this group want that conflicts with what this group wants and you can just sort of write you know these can be bullet point notes they don't have to be you know ten thousand right. word developed things because once you sort of understand sort of story structure and this is where some of these classes where I was take I take help because you can see how those conflicts work and then you're setting up the conflict and then getting out of the way and let the gamers right it out right so, set the, you set start you start the machine and see what the the right. players and do that's, with and it. that's where that's where understanding story is really valuable for a game master or a game designer is because you're setting up a story but you're not telling the story right um so you can so then i just sort of uh so then as i'm doing my campaign design i just kind of filter that down so if you think about an org chart right an org chart looks sort of like a pyramid kind of thing yeah um and you don't necessarily have to fill in then you just continue to do with the cards you just go to go okay well the middle management the local management and then the minions at the bottom well, you may not necessarily develop all this other stuff, but you decide, well, this is where we're going to start our story or our game, and we're going to focus on this, but we know all this other stuff is out there, and we can go, oh, I had that, I as I'm developing the detail on this little place, I can remember, oh, yeah, there was that other corporation that has that mining colony that's three sectors over. Um, and that ties into this other mining colony that the story is in. So I can do a little vignette where I pull something in from over there and stick it on there to create a little conflict. And then maybe that's the next direction we go and we don't really develop any more of this line. You know, you can go, I think building a framework that's very rough and ready that's just enough to give you a an overall sort of viewpoint and then zooming in on the one little spot at the bottom where you're at is is how i would recommend doing something like that yeah i think what probably would be is they would probably be things that are very specific but then give guidelines on probably how and ways those could be used yep well, that's kind of what my project that I'm working on right now is. It's it's a it's a here's some relatively here's a specific situation that the players walk into. Um, so there's a lord that's a drunk and doesn't he he was in he was an adventurer who um, took over another adventurer's domain. Basically, you had a ninth level lord who created a domain. And mm -hmm. then another dyke level lord came in and says, pretty nice house you got there. 
be terrible if something happened to it and then killed that guy and then took over and he's like oh this being a lord stuff sucks i like going around killing monsters i think i'm just going to sit here and get drunk a lot so he's terrible he's not a bad guy he's just a drunk and then you have the extremely competent and capable reeve who is running basically all the agriculture and the, like keeping the town fed and right. doing all that stuff. he's the, he's the adult he's the adult and he thinks he should be the boss, yeah. but he has no skill with a sword. And he knows if he tries to kill the takeover, he's going to get killed. There is the, uh, there's the local misanthropic druid that's part of a cult that wants to completely wipe out human civilization. But because they're such a small little cult, they can't, they have to work in the shadows. Yeah. Uh, there's that guy. Uh, there is a um, spy for a dragon who runs the local inn. And then there's the peasants who are just like, we're just trying to live, man. Yeah. Exactly. Help us out. So, and then the way I've set it up is every one of these little factions tries to bring the adventurers into their like, Hey, help us out here. Right. Um, and sometimes the adventurers are helping everybody. Sometimes they're only helping one group, and that's but that's up to them. So but, I set all that up and give them sort of how you how do you do this, and then it's on it's on you. What's interesting if you ever play like Blades in the Dark, what they do is they have factions, and generally everything you do uh, at the end it it makes one faction happier with you, and one faction less happy with you. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've, I actually threw together a, a house rule uh, reputation system. Yeah. Which is what it is. It's basically a uh, a, a modifier to um, a reaction rule is all it is. It's just a, it's either plus three is the best and negative three is the worst. So if you like do something that really pisses off these guys, well, you get a negative three. Right. Do something to help these group out you have a positive three and it's like, it can go up and down and I just have it on the reference sheet, a little blank where you can like write in what the current uh, reputation modifier is. So it's fairly simple thing to implement in your game without going nuts. Right. Creating a whole new, creating a whole new subsystem that you have to track and pay attention to. Right. And that you can insert pretty much in any OSR game. Or you could just use a, a smiley stickers or frowny stickers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you could. You really could. I mean, you get two smileys. I try to keep my stuff simple. Yeah, but the other thing, too, that I was just thinking, too, is you could also do it where, like, you know, maybe for every smiley face you get, you get one favor. Sure. Yep. Anyway, we're, de we're, we're devolving into uh, <laughs> game design. I think yes. we're probably uh, hitting the... The time-space continuum, uh, Travis, so uh, it's probably a good spot to stop where we're uh, debating modifications to the uh, <laughs> reaction table. Indeed. Well, yeah, I hope so some of that was informative, helpful, entertaining. I'm sure there's at least one piece somewhere that somebody will find helpful. <laughs> hope so. <laughs> Uh, hopefully they put us at 1.5 speed while listening to this. <laughs> <laughs>
doing the doing the laundry or something. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, thanks again, and you're welcome. Uh, and until next time, Travis. You're welcome. Thank you.